All right, we are finally back. Welcome everybody to Didactic Mind, episode one hundred. We are up to one hundred episodes. Episode one hundred, the Eurasian Century. I am Didact, you're very heavy, very unbelosed, and welcome to my podcast. Thank you as always uh, to my longtime listeners, my longtime readers, and subscribers for your tremendous patience. I know it's been a long time since I've done one of these podcasts. And uh, honestly, it's because I was getting lazy. Um, I really wanted to get a special guest of some kind onto this podcast, and I couldn't for a variety of reasons. I mean, I, uh, I actually um, asked Colonel Douglas McGregor uh, if he would be interested. His representative re- replied and said no, which is yeah, fair enough, uh, no problem. And um, I w- would have liked to invite um, Major Scott Ritter if he'd been available, but uh, he wasn't. Or well, that's actually that's not true. I couldn't find his contact details, but that's probably because I wasn't looking very hard. Um, I just couldn't really uh, get asked to find other people to to interview because I really wanted this to be kind of a special interview um, type format where we could go into a lot of details uh, about geopolitics and economics and explore a number of topics. But I hope over time. This podcast grows to the point where we can have guests on board. Um, if you as a listener know of someone whom you think would be useful to interview and would be willing to be interviewed by some nobody, uh, shoot me the details and I'll send out an invitation and you know, we'll try to set something up. But in the meantime, you're just going to have to listen to me uh, rabbit on for a while. And since this is the 100th episode, normally uh, I would try to close this out bang on the nose at one hour. But depending on how my voice holds up, because it's not easy to speak for a long period of time if you're a quiet guy like me. And depending on what I have to say, we may go on for longer than that. We'll see. Um, It is the 100th episode, so we can afford to relax things a little bit. Uh, before we continue, make sure if you haven't got yourself a VPN subscription, check out Surfshark or Atlas VPN. There are links to both in the description box. Uh, you definitely need a VPN these days. There's no question about it, especially as we get into this is what um, the very start of Rainbow Month, which is just oh, I mean, you're going to see everywhere on social media, LinkedIn, every woke company that's out there is going to be proudly displaying the rainbow flag and you can't criticize the rainbow people at all. If you try to call somebody gay in a YouTube comment, for instance, YouTube, I think, automatically deletes it. I can't be sure of this, but um, I tried posting a comment recently on a video um, by Alex Christoforou um, pointing out the really ridiculous things that uh, the outright homo uh, Alexei Arestovich, the advisor to President uh, Elensky of Ukraine, Zelensky, as we all know, um, said in relation to uh, in relation to Western weapons supplies. And the guy basically said, uh, if the Western weapons supplies don't come through, you, we will have an exemplary tantrum. Literally, this guy is the advisor to the President of Ukraine, and he's saying we're going to pitch a hissy fit if we don't get what we want. Um, I mean, I feel sorry for the people of Ukraine. I really do. They're, they've got a war that, you know, that they didn't, they specifically didn't cause, their leadership did. And the best that their advisors to their leader can do, whom, by the way, he's not really democratically elected, 
don't fool yourselves. Igor Kolomoisky, the uh, Jewish Cypriot Ukrainian, so Israeli Cypriot Ukrainian, he has three passports. Uh, billionaire oligarch, uh, I think either the richest or the second richest man in Ukraine, depending on how you measure it, installed Zelensky in office. That's well known. I mean, Kolomoisky owned the production studio that made Zelensky's show, Servant of the People. He financed the Servant of the People party, and he made sure that Zelensky uh, was elected through his uh, very heavy control over the media networks in, um, in Ukraine. So you can't criticize people like these easily unless you can do so somewhat anonymously. And to do that, you need a VPN. Make sure you take advantage of the deals offered by Surfshark. In fact, they've come up with a new deal uh, of late. You, if you sign up now, you get two months extra for free if you do a two-year subscription and you get their antivirus service for free. I don't care about the antivirus because I use Linux, obviously. I couldn't care less. But if you're on Windows or Mac OS, um, make sure you take advantage of it. I mean, with, with Linux, you don't... It's not that you can't get a virus on a Linux system. You can. It, you, it is actually quite possible to to get a viral infection on a Linux system. But it's much harder than it is with Windows. You actually have to choose to run the infected file um, and install it through a, usually a centralized repository or uh, through a, a package file that you download yourself. It's not something you can just double-click and open and it immediately installs itself. You can't do that. So... Um, Anyway, the, the point of today's podcast is to take a, a long view on some of the developments that we've seen coming over the last three months. What's become increasingly clear, I mean, absolutely clear, really, is that the world has changed pretty much irreversibly in the past hundred or so days. Uh, because it's been about a hundred days since the special military operation started. Indeed, if we calculate it, uh, let's see, what is today? The 1st of June, the special military operation started on February 24th. Um, and that's what, uh, if you do the, if you do a straight, straight up calculation of the, the difference, uh, yeah, we're at day 98 of the special military operation in Banderistan. So, Things have changed unquestionably and irreversibly, pretty much. And what we're looking at in the years ahead may well be the rise and domination of the Eurasian powers. And by that, I mean Russia, India, and China. Why? Because the prevailing paradigm of world economics and world politics for decades, for the last 50 years or so, has been that the West, the economic power of the West, would be unsurpassed and unchallenged. But structural shifts have taken place within the Western world that ensure that the West is going to crack and break and fade away. It's already happening. You can see the late-stage imperial collapse that we're witnessing all around us. If we look at the economic situation in the West, inflation has serious, persistent, real inflation has taken root and it's not going away. You can see how the leadership has completely failed to understand limits on its power, 
and limits on its ability to act. People think in the Western leadership circles that they can do whatever the hell they want, free of consequences, divorced from reality. And the reason for that is because most of the leaders of the Western world really have no background in anything real. They have no background in anything other than politics. Their academic backgrounds are pathetic. They are complete losers in every major aspect of business, finance, and the production of real things. But we're observing a very radical paradigm shift back to an economics or uh, an economic school of thinking that focuses on real things, real production. True economic power is no longer about how much capital you can raise, how cheaply. It's now about how much you can produce and at what cost. And the, there's a subtle but very important difference between the two. If you look at the way the West manages its power, it really rests on the currency and specifically on the US dollar. The dominance of the US dollar has led to the very comfortable and very artificial standard of living enjoyed by every other Western country, pretty much. If you look at the origins of this system, it goes back to Bretton Woods in um, the post-World War II era, Treaty of 1948, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Bretton Woods essentially consisted of a way to get people back on some sort of uh, universal standard. Uh, 1944, my apologies. It's a 1944 Bretton Woods Treaty. And it the idea was effectively to try to restabilize the international monetary system. If you go back even further in time to the end of the Gilded Age, essentially the 1920s, what happened? Well, World War I happened and pulled everybody off the gold standard. Now, why is this such a critical, monumental development? A hundred years ago, the world went off the gold standard. Why is this important? Well, it's important because gold has always acted as a substantial check on government power. A hard currency has always been a very powerful check upon a government's ability to spend more than it takes in, and therefore has always acted as a tremendous break upon government's ability to abuse its powers and its citizens. Of course, governments have always hated the gold standard for that exact reason. And every time a government has come along to debase the gold standard, it's been able to get away with it for a while. I mean, the Romans did it you know, many times where they would routinely remove or chip away at the total amount of actual gold in the uh, in the denarius and or the you know in, in the case of the, uh, the the Byzantines the solidus and they would continuously try to remove more and more gold well why would they do that because they would they would pretend that the value of the denarius or the solidus in the market was whatever it was let's say 100 grains of gold I'm just making a number up but in reality it was only worth actually about 80 grains of gold let's say again making a number up well that 20 grain difference is going to be noticeable after a while. People are going to realize that their money isn't actually worth what they think it's worth. So inevitably, they're going to ditch, um, they're going to kind of hoard their real 
money, the, the true gold that they have, and they're going to replace it with this crappy money that they have, and they'll pull money out of the system, which results in uh, this cheaper, crappier money, which requires, you need more of it to buy the same amount of stuff. This inevitably results in inflation. Devaluation and inflation go hand in hand. And if you look at what happened during World War One, the reason why nations went off the gold standard is because they couldn't service their debts otherwise. When you um, overspend, you have to then cut back on spending to preserve the peg of your currency against the metal standard that you're using. If you have it pegged to gold and you spend too much, the value of your currency rapidly depreciates. So you have to cut back spending and buy more and more gold in order to keep that, um, that, that currency peg, uh, you know, proper. It needs to be recalibrated back to the original price that you had. Now you can devalue. You can basically say, well, we only recognize, let's say, if uh, the price of oh, the, the the gold standard that you were on was, I don't know, let's say twenty dollars to the ounce of gold, and you say, well, now we're going to recognize it as thirty-five dollars to the ounce. That's a massive, dramatic devaluation, and you can get away with that only if you are the medium of exchange for the entire world. If you are the reserve currency, as it were. Well, the reserve currency up until World War I was the British pound. After World War I, with the breaking of the British Empire, under the strain of all the accumulated war debt, it became the US dollar, slowly over time. It was not, you know, it wasn't like one day it was the pound and then the next day everybody switched to dollars. No, that's not what happened. But over time, it became very clear that the British Empire could no longer perform that function of the world's reserve currency. And the ability to service war debts became of absolutely critical importance to the European nations. So one by one, they started breaking with the gold standard and printing fiat money instead, and started pegging the value of that fiat money to another fiat standard. Essentially, they started pegging it to the dollar or to the pound. Um, this was a reasonable system because the dollar itself was pegged to gold for a while, but it wasn't the most trustworthy system. Remember that in the 1930s, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the most overrated president in American history, uh, and definitely one of the worst, I mean, definitely in the top five worst presidents, uh, issued the emergency, signed off essentially on the Emergency Banking Act, which essentially forced all American citizens to convert their gold holdings into dollars and thereby effectively eradicated gold as a personal hedge against inflation and against government corruption. Because again, remember what happens when you put good money uh, or you, you put bad money into a system with good money that already exists, Gresham's law kicks in. Bad money chases out good money. People hoard gold in order to uh, have money, like useful funds on hand for the day when the fiat currency collapses and loses all value. So they, they, they start using this, this crappy money for, uh, everyday transactions, but they hold back the good money for the time when they really need it. Inevitably, this cycle gets worse and worse and you have 
spiking inflation. And that was the situation that confronted a lot of nations after World War I, severe rampant inflation, which they could only really bring under control by coming back to the gold standard. But the problem was that they had too much accumulated debt. World War I didn't just mean the end of an era, it meant the end of a civilization. It really did. It meant the destruction of European civilization. Up until that point, the greatest civilization, bar none, that the world had ever seen. And the result was a massive degradation, deterioration in living standards all across Europe. It was tragic beyond description. And because of the way that World War I was fought, because of the horrors of the war, and because of the economic consequences of the war, life in Europe has never been the same since. It never will be because of what happened. Now, following World War II, when really the United States was the only nation in all of, um, among all of the victorious powers to come out with its industrial base untouched, Everything was tied to the industrial production of the United States, and the United States dollar was pegged against gold. So because nobody else had any alternative currency to offer, no, nobody else had an alternative stable medium of exchange to offer, the world pegged its fortunes to the US dollar, and the US dollar was pegged to gold. And this idea was the Bretton Woods system. And it worked for about 20 years. It worked quite well. But then came the 1960s, and then we saw Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society experiment, which went horribly wrong. It essentially amounted to a spending bonanza. The idea behind LBJ's uh, approach was to lock up the black vote and lock up the, um, the elderly vote for the Democrats. And, of course, he succeeded beyond his wildest dreams, but in the process... He set the stage for the long-term bankruptcy of the United, entire United States. A lot of people look at the entitlements crisis in the U.S. and they think Social Security and uh, Social Security and Medicare are unsustainable. Well, they're right. It is. If you add up the total unfunded liabilities of Social Security and Medicare together, they come to well, nobody really knows. Um, the numbers are too eye-watering and mind-boggling to believe, but the numbers come into the realm of, in present value terms, between 70 and 100 trillion, trillion dollars in debt over the next couple of decades. Nobody in his right mind can possibly say that the United States is going to be able to fund that uh, with a 20 trillion dollar nominal economy. It's just not going to happen. But that is the consequence of LBJ's decision back then. Now, what do we see? Uh, we see, or in the 1960s, what do we see? We see the gold standard or the convertibility of gold coming under severe strain. And as Vietnam War debts began to rack up and the U.S. began to have trouble paying off its debts while remaining pegged to gold because the debts put fiscal pressure on the United States that would have required substantial, dramatic cuts in spending in order to maintain that gold standard. In the 1970s, Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard and immediately caused a massive depreciation in the dollar and immediately caused widespread inflation and extreme uh, suffering and poverty. Well, that brings us to the petrodollar. And that was the deal with the devil that Nixon and the Saudis made. 
Essentially, what happened was the Saudis agreed to buy um, to to sell the U.S. oil denominated in U.S. dollars. They would then use that the dollars that they got to buy American weapons and invest in American treasury bonds in order to keep the American economy afloat. And this is the cornerstone of much of America's industrial and economic prosperity today. It's not the only reason, but it's a very large part of the reason. That petrodollar has ensured that the United States remains the Middle East's great protector. And it is difficult to escape the conclusion that the United States will do anything, kill anyone, destroy any country that dares to oppose that idea. Why do you think the United States invaded Iraq in 2003? It wasn't because of weapons of mass destruction. That's bullshit. We now, we now know it's bullshit. There were no WMDs. It happened really most likely because Saddam Hussein made it clear that he wanted to start trading Iraqi oil in euros, not in dollars anymore. He didn't want to be tied just to the dollar system. The United States understood that this was an existential threat to its economy, went in, took him out, destroyed the Middle East in the process. I mean, this was a damn fool Syracuse expedition that has lasted very nearly 20 years, has completely failed. Um, and it just, it, it hasn't worked to deliver anything. It's been a giant black hole of money. In 2014, or really in, in 2012 onwards, Barack Obama went into Libya and essentially tried to depose uh, Gaddafi, and he did. Gaddafi gave up his WMDs after the invasion of Iraq. He gave up that WMD program, but he also said he wanted to start selling oil and currencies other than the US dollar. Guess what? 2014, he ended up dead, sodomized with an iron bar and his corpse dragged through the streets. And shortly thereafter, of course, uh, Benghazi happened. So that tells you quite a lot about just how bad things got in 2012. Uh, I may have gotten the Benghazi date wrong. I'm pretty sure Benghazi was uh, 2012, actually. Uh, attack, yeah, it was 2012, my mistake, not 2014, 2012. Um, that tells you the kinds of lengths that the United States will go to in order to protect the dollar. Now, what does this have to do with the modern day? It has to do with the fact that the United States today is an over-leveraged, financialized, uh, desiccated husk of an economy. The petrodollar and the incentives that came off of it allowed the United States to essentially neglect its industrial production, its industrial base. It allowed the U.S. to get away with putting those, putting all of those funds coming in from outside into um, kind of making money from money, Wall Street games, effectively, rather than concentrating on building up an actual industrial base. And the result is what we see today, where companies will basically come up with great stories. They'll become unicorns, tech unicorns, as it were, try to float themselves in the stock market. And they'll achieve nosebleed valuations, I mean, insanely high valuations. And 
there's nothing there. There's, there's nothing physical, no product behind them. If you try to unpack their balance sheets, they're unreadable because you're like, well, everything here is marked as goodwill or intangibles on the balance sheet. Where are the hard assets? Where are the, where's the actual productive machinery? Where's the, where's the stuff that makes everything run? And it's like, well, we don't have any. We're a lean, mean, you know, brain thinking machine. Um, okay. There's, I mean, there's room for stuff like that in an economy. Sure. You need consulting firms. You need, big brains to come in and help you figure out strategy and help you figure out where to concentrate resources and stuff like that. But an entire company based on a software idea um, that may or may not actually prove to be useful, that's worth a half a billion dollars or half a trillion dollars even, potentially? Really? But that's the situation we're in now. And that brings us really to the present day. Very rushed tour through everything, and I a bit uneven, I know. But what are we looking at today? We're looking at the return of the physical economy, the production of real things. Look at what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine, with full justification, might I add. Russia was absolutely justified in what it did. And a lot of people are going to disagree with that. A lot of people are going to criticize that. Uh, pretty much nobody who listens to me is going to do it. But a lot of people would be very, very angry to hear me say that. But it is the truth. The Russians did what they did with absolute 100% justification. Now look at the blowback from that. What happened? Essentially, the entire Western world tried to sanction Russia into oblivion. But it hasn't worked. Why? Why hasn't it worked? Well, I've been over this in previous podcast episodes and a number of times on my site, so I'm not going to repeat myself too much. Essentially, the Russians understood what was coming and they tried to prepare as best they could for it. They didn't get it all done in time, but they managed to do a lot. They were able to immunize their banking system from sanctions by shifting over to entirely or almost entirely domestic sources of funding. Russian banks don't need foreign sources of funding anymore. They get most of their deposit base internally from within Russia, from Russian citizens trying to open up savings accounts and deposit accounts, checking accounts with Russian banks like Sberbank, like VTB, like uh, Tinkoff, like Gazprom Bank, uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, you, you can go all the way down the list, Avantgarde Bank, etc., etc., etc. They're doing this because that's where the money is. They understand that there's no way that they'll be allowed into European markets. As a result, if Western nations try to sanction Russian banks, they're not going to get anywhere because Russians don't depend on foreign capital flows to maintain the banking system. The same cannot be said of the world banking system in general. The US and especially the European banking systems depend on foreign inflows of capital, enormous amounts of them. If you look at some of the European banks, if you were able to cut them out of the SWIFT system tomorrow, their economies would collapse overnight. If you were to cut UBS out of the SWIFT system tomorrow, Switzerland would disappear. Credit Suisse, if you were to cut UBS and Credit Suisse out of the SWIFT system, the Swiss economy would be destroyed immediately. If you were to look at uh, BNP Paribas or Societe, Societe uh, Socgen, however the hell you pronounce it, um, in France, if you were to cut them out of the uh, SWIFT system, French economy would collapse tomorrow. 
Same with Deutsche Bank in Germany. If you were to cut Deutsche out of the SWIFT system, it would be destroyed. But Russian banks don't have that problem because they don't rely so much on foreign capital flows. Instead, the Russians have an economy based on production of real things, of oil, coal, gas, lumber, steel, iron, wheat, any number of other physical assets that you can think of. And it isn't just restricted to physical production. If you look at some of the IP that is embedded within their most valuable tech companies, you'll very quickly realize that it is on par with anything that the Western world has to offer. If you compare Yandex with Google, or Vkontaktia with Facebook, or Odnoklasniki uh, with actually Facebook as well, um, you will find that the technology isn't as good, perhaps, but they actually have a number of features that make them better in some areas than their Western counterparts. Yandex uh, Search, for instance, is really good. I mean, you get a lot of Russian biased results, obviously, because it's it indexes Russian. It, it indexes the runet rather. It it indexes the runet first, and then the rest of the world. So its results are very much biased and skewed towards one particular um, set. Obviously, and that's fine. But if you look at the way that Vkontaktie works relative to Facebook, or you look at the way that Yandex's maps or wallet or drive or uh, mail or um, not just uh, Yandex drive as in the application, but Yandex uh, uh, taxi is what I was actually referring to. You compare that with Uber. It's just as good. In some ways, it's better. It works better in Russia. That's for damn sure. Yandex Maps works better in Russia than Google Maps does. So it's very clear that you have real homegrown competition to foreign tech giants. And it's not like the Russians don't know how to manufacture high technology stuff. They can. They're fully capable of manufacturing their own commercial and military aircraft that can match or beat other examples from anywhere in the world. Russia's economy, nominally speaking, is only about $1.7 trillion. But once you start adding up the value of the actual stuff that they have, it's very conservatively estimated at $28 trillion. $28 trillion. And that's before, that's in nominal terms, that's before you get to the purchasing power of the Russian people. If you were to measure everything on purchasing power parity terms, if you were to use like Big Mac index or something similar to measure what people can actually buy and measure it on a level playing field between other countries, you're very quickly going to realize the Russian economy is close to $5 trillion. Again, that's before you count all the stuff that's in their country. If you were to add up all of that, it would be bigger than the US economy is right now. That's the truth. If you look at the world from the lens of purchasing power parity, from a level playing field, what you're very quickly going to realize is that India, China, and Russia together outstrip the combined West. And in economic power alone, the future belongs to them. Now, if you look at the West, what's happening? Again, you see late stage imperial collapse, of course. But why is it happening? It's happening because the West has stopped producing stuff 
and has started making money from money. If you look at uh, this obsession with the green agenda in Europe or in uh, the United States, it is utterly misguided, utterly stupid, foolish in every possible way. There is no sound thinking behind any of it. And why is that happening? Because the people at the top have zero background in the actual production of things. By the way, you could level the same charge at me. I mean, I have two degrees in mathematics and so on. Um, my whole career has been as a white-collar worker, as a knowledge worker of various kinds. I've never really gotten my hands dirty. That's fine. I mean, I, I, would, I would certainly accept that criticism. I have no problem stating outright, I don't know what it's like to work in the energy industry. I've only ever worked as a consultant. I don't know what it's like to deal with logistics and shipping and uh, the, the realities of moving heavy things around, right? I don't know. But I can say with a great deal of confidence that I know a damn sight more about it than most people do because I actually, or at least most of the politicians do, because I actually talk to people who are involved in these things. I actually know people who are involved in the production of things, the real economy. And it's a very different world from Wall Street or the banking system or consulting or any of these soft jobs where you don't really have to do much that deals with the real world. By contrast, the Russians are used to thinking in terms of the real world. And they understand that true economic power comes from what you make, not what you own in terms of you know paper. What you make in terms of physical things, not what you own in terms of bits of paper that are traded on a stock market. That's the difference between the illusion of power and real power. And now we're beginning to see the results. So what is going to happen in the next 20 to 30 to 40 years, let's say, 20 to 50 years? Well, we're going to see a giant transfer of power, wealth, and influence from the Western world United States and Europe, to Russia, China, and India. That's the reality. Europe has essentially condemned itself to becoming a backwater. Here's why. The Europeans have essentially said, we are going to cut ourselves off from Russian fossil fuels, coal, oil, gas. Good luck with that. What that means is a total deindustrialization of their economy. Because if you're going to go to green energy, well, that's idiotic. Solar and wind power cannot supply what you want. You cannot decarbonize an economy because solar and wind power are actually very expensive and very inefficient. Solar power does not work when it's gray and the sun is behind the clouds. Wind power does not work when it's not windy. If you combine the two, you still have a huge problem. To manufacture wind turbines and solar energy panels, you need coal, and you need a particular type of coal, actually. You need sand, and you need rare earth minerals. Guess who produces most of the solar and wind, solar panels and wind turbines out there? China. And most of uh, those solar and wind uh, engines or panels and turbines cannot be recycled. They have to be buried in the earth, and then they leach dangerous chemicals into the ground. So all you're doing is transferring the burden of manufacturing and production of these things to another country. 
You're holding your entire energy system hostage to that country while you're denying yourself the real benefits of cheap, easily accessible hydrocarbons. Anyone who thinks that you can have a carbon-free or net-zero economy is not living on planet Earth. Anyone who believes that you can get rid of fossil fuels has no understanding of basic organic chemistry. If you believe that you can have a modern industrialized economy without hydrocarbons, take a look around you, wherever you are right now, take a look at everything in your, in your house or your apartment or wherever you are. Every single thing that you look at is the result of the use of hydrocarbons somewhere in its manufacturing process, if not outright in its construction. If you are using plastics anywhere in your home, that is the result of hydrocarbons, because that's where plastics comes from. If you are getting, you know, hot water out of your tap, that is the result of using hydrocarbons to power a boiler that heats the water. If you are, if you have a, a mobile phone charger that uses a fast charge cable, that is the result of hydrocarbons because of the rubber coating or the plastic coating or that sheaths the wires. The wires themselves are produced using hydrocarbons. The the the, the plastic uh, around the case that 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 you know is used for the adapter is hydrocarbon based. All of the insulation that you see around you is hydrocarbon based. The building materials used in the construction of your house is hydrocarbon based. Everything you see is hydrocarbon based at some level. Anyone who believes otherwise is living in a fantasy land and cannot be taken seriously. But that is the problem. That is exactly what most of the European and American leaders are like. Look at their qualifications. Andrei Martyanov does this, you know, Grandpa Grumpus, as I call him. He's great. He's hilarious. He talks about this repeatedly in his um, uh, videos and on his blog, smoothiex12.blogspot.com. Go check it out. Uh, link in the description box, hopefully, if I remember to put it in there. He is hilarious. I mean, I love listening to him speak. Dievushka uh, Svarilvi, as I call him, because he's, he is grumpy. I mean, but he's, he doesn't mean to be. He's, he sounds like your angry old cranky crotchety grandfather when he's telling those kids to get off my damn lawn and pull up your damn pants. You know, that's, that's what he sounds like. It's hysterical. But, um, this is the guy who says, essentially, if you look at these people, you know, Annalena Baerbock or Robert Habeck or Olaf Scholz in Germany or Emmanuel Macron in France or uh, Sanna Marin in Finland or, you know, Mario Draghi in Italy, uh, uh, Mitsotakis in Greece, Johnson, Boris Johnson, the idiot in, in the United Kingdom. Look at the backgrounds of all these people. You know, journalism, social studies history, maybe some economics here and there, uh, political science, you know, English, classical literature, the humanities, Greek, in Johnson's case, uh, he studied classics at Oxford. I mean, these are worthy pursuits in and of their own right. You know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make fun of somebody who, who speaks ancient Greek well. I know what, how hard Russian is. Ancient Greek, ancient Latin, well, there is only ancient Latin, uh, ancient Greek, Latin, um, Hebrew, you know, these are very difficult languages. 
there's a time and a place for a linguist. Yes, I agree. It's not at the top of the, the political food chain. It's really not. You compare that with the people at the top in places like China or Russia. And what do you see? You see people with qualifications in really, really hard sciences. You look at all the people in power at the CCP. And Lord knows, I can't stand the CCP. I, I, I loathe the Chinese communist system. I mean, it's not communist anymore, not really, but I absolutely loathe the way they run things. But you look at the people at the top, look at their qualifications. Every single one of them is an engineer of some kind. Every single one. Every one of them is a mechanical engineer, a civil engineer, an aircraft engineer, a nuclear engineer, an electrical engineer. If you discount civil engineering, because most, I think most real engineers will tell you that's joke engineering, you look at people who have degrees in nuclear, aeronautical, chemical, or electrical engineering, and they're going to tell you, like, these are four incredibly hard disciplines. And the people who come out of there are really, really smart. You look at those people, and you look at the level of brain power and talent that they have in the CCP, and then you compare it with the jokers in charge in Germany and France, you know, where they, they all come from the same schools, they all think exactly the same way, and they're all de dedicated only to the preservation of power. Well, you know, you're dealing with a gap in competence that is too, too great to be um, ignored. You look at the political class in the United States, what do most of them study? Law. They don't have backgrounds in business in the production of real things. That's why, you know, when, when, here we go again. Uh, I've got to take a drink for this. His most illustrious, noble, benevolent, and august, his most, I got it wrong. His most uh, illustrious, noble, august, and benevolent celestial majesty, the God Emperor of mankind, Donaldus Triumphus Magnus Astra, the first of his name, the Lion of Midnight, uh, the, may the Lord bless him and preserve him, you know, the chattest of chads ever to chat across a stage. That guy, when he was elected as president, he was the first president in a very long time since, well, since basically Reagan, oddly enough, who had experience in the real economy doing real things. I mean, everybody thinks Reagan was just some bumpkin actor. He wasn't. He actually spent an enormous part of his career, an enormous amount of time in his life, traveling around the country, meeting real people who do real things and talking to them. He was, he was really good at it, actually. And he honed his campaign style and his speeches on the trail. So he began to understand what people do for a living. And he spoke to them about what they do. He didn't talk down to them. He tried to understand them. So he, he interacted with real people and understood what the real economy looks like. Trump was the same way. Trump understood as a real estate builder what it means to pay for things and people rather than just abstract pushing numbers around on a spreadsheet. That is what the West is missing today in its leadership class. And that's what we're seeing increasingly in Western decision-making. It's bonkers. I mean, the, the European leaders are literally shooting themselves in both feet and the face to avoid using Russian hydrocarbons. Well, what is that going to do? It's just going to impoverish their people. It's going to make them poorer and them more miserable. And it's going to make everything vastly more expensive. You're looking at the deindustrialization of Europe. You really are. So when we talk about the Eurasian century, I mean, what does that mean? 
It means the transference of economic power away from the West in a very radical and dramatic fashion to these three huge European countries, uh, Eurasian countries, Russia, India, and China. Now, what does this mean in practical terms? Well, it means that Russians are about to get very, very rich. The, it's going to take a while to realize that because the sheer mass of the Russian economy is enormous and it takes enormous energy to start moving it. But you're already seeing that movement. Look at what the Russians are going to do over the next six months to one year and you'll get some idea of how powerful that engine is once it really gets going and once it does not have any longer the, the, the idiotic, stupid, moronic, devilish, satanic ideology of communism and of collectivization guiding it. The Russians are going to introduce essentially the hardest currency in the world. Uh, there's a very interesting interview between Pepe Escobar and uh, Sergei Glazyev, uh, who is, I think, an economic advisor to President Putin. Now, Glazyev is not a hard money guy. He does not, he's not a believer in the gold standard. He, he strongly argues for a more liberal monetary policy. If you look at um, the head of the Russian Central Bank today, Elvira Nabulina, she is a monetary hawk. She's an inflation hawk. And she's, she, remarkably, a woman in charge, is remarkably competent. Amazingly so. I mean, I talk about how the, the horror, the, the terrible um, mistakes made by women in charge of things, putting women in charge of things. She's actually very good. But what she has done is focus on keeping inflation as low as possible in Russia. And for the Russians, low as possible means the acceptable rate is 4%, no more than that. 4% is still pretty high. I mean, you know, 4%, if, if you look at um, how long it would take to sort of for, for prices to, to double overall, you know, it would take about 18 years if you, um, if you use the rule of 72 uh, at 4% growth. But um, given that, you know, every generation or so prices would be double what they are today. Okay, fine. That's still not as bad as 10%, where it's like every seven years, prices have basically collapsed. Um, it's still a very sensible way of managing the economy. Glazyev argues that you could permit inflation to be a little higher. I disagree with that categorically. I think inflation is a terrible, terrible idea. I think central bankers everywhere are wrong when they say that inflation is tolerable. It's not. And central bankers everywhere are terrified of deflation. They shouldn't be. It's not a bad thing. Uh, it terrifies uh, central bankers because the value of banking assets um, becomes problematic under deflation. It, it actually decreases under deflation because obviously, you know, the price of all assets de declines. So inevitably, banks go bankrupt during deflationary, deflationary periods. But actually, overall, deflation is a good thing. Here's why. If you look back at the economic history of the United States, and you look at um, the depression of the, 19, uh, the 1870s, excuse me, that is a very interesting case in economic history because it's a depression that wasn't. Every, back in the day, the New York Slimes, you know, even then, the, 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 the newspapers back then were writing bullshit and baloney. Um, it may not have been the Times, back then. could be wrong about that. I'm pretty sure it was, but uh, it was some newspaper. 
that wrote about farmers, you know, being driven to the brink of or being driven to suicide by rapidly declining produce prices, which made it unprofitable for them to stay open, and so on and so forth. It caused lots of uh, problems within the farming economy, and uh, prices within the United States contracted, and so on and so forth. Yeah, okay, fine, that's all true. I, I'm not denying that. But what they neglect is the fact that wages move slower than prices. Prices move quickly, wages move slowly. Which means that in a deflationary environment, the ordinary person actually becomes wealthier in real terms. So deflation is actually a very good thing for people's wealth, for people's relative wealth. And that is the, the key to solving a deflationary crisis. When people's wealth, real-term wealth, goes up, they feel themselves richer and more able to buy things, inevitably the deflation stops, it bottoms out. And what you find is a higher standard of living for everybody. Now, that is not to say that chronic deflation is a good thing, it's not, just as chronic inflation is not a good thing. But having prices staying relatively stable over generations is a very good thing. And that's what we've not had in the West for many decades. In Russia, by contrast, they are looking to create, again, the hardest currency in the world. The ruble now has a floor under it of 5,000 rubles per gram of gold. That's the official purchase price that the Russian Central Bank is willing to, um, to, to offer. Now, if you look at um, the current price of gold, if you look at uh, gold in terms of grams, it's right now trading at, uh, well, it's, it's, wow, spiked quite a bit actually. It's up to about 59, 60 bucks um, uh, per, per gram. And if you look at the ruble uh, dollar exchange rate, it would indicate, you know, we're trading at about 65, yeah, well, actually less than that, 61.5. Um, dollars to uh, 61.5 rubles to the dollar. If you take the uh, the spot price of gold, $60 per, out, per gram, and the ruble USD conversion rate of 61.5 rubles to the dollar, you'll find that the implied ruble to USD exchange rate in gold is actually 83.83 rubles to the dollar. So Supposedly, on global markets right now, the ruble is trading at a gigantic um, discount to its true implied value. Now, that only applies if you look at the easily manipulated paper spot price for gold. If you actually look at the cost of delivery for gold, which is close to $80, you're going to find that if you plug in $80 into a very simple formula, you're going to find that 5,000 divided by 80 gives you 62.5. And that is pretty much about where the ruble is trading right now, 61.5 to the dollar. Which means that the Russian Central Bank's goal of pegging the ruble to gold has worked. Not only that, but the Russian Central Bank is over time going to switch to a digital ruble backed by a basket of commodities, by gold, silver, wheat oil, coal, gas, lumber, all the other, you know, thousands and thousands of other goods and commodities that uh, Russia produces. 
which means that every single ruble in circulation will be backed by a hard asset, not by the full faith and credit of the Russian government, which actually you can trust because if you look at Russia's debt to GDP ratio, it's less than 20%, I think, uh, at this point. It's probably uh, less than 30% for sure, probably around 25% thereabouts. They owe roughly $640 billion in debt overall, of which something like um, $60 billion, or about 10%, is owed to foreign creditors. That's it. The majority of Russian debt is held by Russians. $60 billion, they could cover the entire external debt load of the country in three months just from uh, gas and oil exports right now. They're making $20 billion or more a month in gas and oil exports. So you're looking at an economy that is fundamentally powerful, not weak, powerful. And you're looking at a country that has tremendous technical knowledge and talent and tremendous skill embedded in its workforce. John McCain, may he burn in hell, said once that Russia is essentially just a gas station masquerading as a country. He didn't know what he's talking about. Most people who talk about Russia don't. He never went to, to Russia itself to see what the actual productive economy there is like. Russia's economy, its industrial capacity, is mind-boggling. It really is. It will blow your mind if you go to Russia and you look at how much the country is capable of producing. It's staggering. How much land it has, how much industrial capacity it has, how much room it has to grow. It is, it, it is just absolutely shocking. The main problem that Russia has is its people. It has a population of about 145 million right now. And up until fairly recently, that was projected to drop by about half by the end of the 21st century. That is probably no longer the case because, number one, the Russian birth rate has been ticking upwards for years. So now it's at about 1.8. Uh, the, the, the total fertility rate is about 1.8 children per woman. That's still nowhere near high enough. It needs to be three or four in order to really grow the Russian economy to its full potential. And it's not going to get there for a long time. I mean, these things take a long time to change. And the Russian government is very, very fiscally conservative under Putin, no question. But it's going to take time to get to that point where they can really unleash the productive power of the Russian economy. It's going to be very difficult to do. Uh, the government doesn't seem to be willing to replicate what Orban's government is doing in Hungary by increasing social spending dramatically to the point where they can put out these, these social programs that, that, um, that would fund healthcare, childcare, education for women with three or more children. They're doing some of it. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is a program in place to provide for women with three or more children. And the Orthodox Church in Russia is getting involved as well. They're basically, Patriarch Kirill has said, I will personally be the godfather to your son or daughter if you have three or more children. That's pretty good. I mean, you know, um, if you're the mother of Russian babies and you're saying, well, Hey, you know, Putin's on my side. He's on my side. Big fellow upstairs is on my side through the patriarch Kirill. I mean, what's not to like? The government's helping you out. Um, your husband's happy because, well, we all know why. <laughs> it's, uh, creating kids is a wonderful thing. Um, or at least it should be. And 
you know, you have lots of kids running around that, that can support you in your old age. It's a good thing. But this is the one major flaw of Russia's, Russia's economy. It just doesn't have the people right now. However, that's, I mean, the first aspect is kind of being solved through rapidly rising birth rates. Um, there is a fly in that particular ointment because a lot of it is coming from the Muslim republics in Russia, and that's a very bad thing. You don't want the native Christian population to be shunted aside by Muslims. That would be a colossal mistake for the entirety of Russia. It would be the end of Russia if Muslims took over. No doubt about that. On the other side of it, though, is the fact that the Russians are now making it substantially easier for Russian-speaking peoples to apply for Russian citizenship. So Russian-speaking peoples in Moldova, Ukraine, uh, Estonia, Latvia, you know, all the former sort of satellite colonies of the Soviet Union can now go to Russia and apply for citizenship and become citizens in, I think, five years or less. Um, it used to be extremely difficult to emigrate to Russia. It's become easier. It's still very difficult. I know because I've checked. It's still very difficult to do. You can only really do it on a spousal visa. I mean, that's the easiest way. And to be honest um, and very, very blunt about it, Russian women don't marry um, non-Russian men as a general rule. There are exceptions, obviously. Um, they don't marry non-Russian men with the, with the idea of bringing them back to Russia. They marry non-Russian men with the intent of getting out of Russia. That's the truth. So I don't think you're going to find it very easy to emigrate to Russia anytime in the near future, even if you want to. If you speak Russian and you want to adopt Russian ways of life, okay, then it becomes more easy, more possible. But Russia is going to have a lot of problems with its human capital for quite some time. The absorption of the Donbass republics of large parts of eastern and southern Ukraine will ease this problem substantially. We're probably going to see another 5 million or so Russians, ethnic Russians, joining the Russian Federation. And that will help tremendously. I mean, the bits of Ukraine that uh, Russia is absorbing through the Banderistan War are the most productive and uh, industrialized in all of Ukraine. That is going to help their economy out substantially. But it's not enough. There's more that needs to be done, and Russia's birth rate has to improve. But all in all, we see that Russia's productive capacity, its economy, its, its growth potential is just staggering. I mean, out of all of the Eurasian powers, this is the country to watch out for. With a hard currency, with the ability to produce everything it wants, with an autarkic economy, it is the country that will determine the future of the Eurasian continent. If you then look at China, well, China, in purchasing power parity terms, has a, an economy that's bigger than the U.S., actually, technically speaking. It is the number one economy in the world on, in um, purchasing power terms. So it is already surpassing the U.S. economy in terms of productive uh, potential and actual you know, realized production. So what does that mean in terms of China's economic future? Well... It means that the Chinese are going to become the dominant power in the Pacific. Are they going to be able to project power around the world? Not really. Because if you look at the Chinese economy, it actually has a number of very, very serious structural problems.
there's a very good series of videos from I think Polymatter, which I outlined in um, a post from a while back. There are four videos which break down why China isn't going to be a superpower or a hyperpower. The first is China's population, which is not only aging badly. I mean, they've used up their demographic dividend from the 1950s and 60s when they had a high birth rate to today where even despite government incentives to have two or more children, actually three or more children now, most Chinese families just aren't doing it because it's too expensive. Um, they have exhausted that demographic dividend. It's not coming back. That's before you get to the huge, and I mean biblical, real estate bubble in China. That's also before you get to the water crises that they have within China. And that's all before you get to the political uh, deadlock in, in China itself, the political issues. If I go back and look at that post, here's kind of what it says. Um, one second, let me go look it up because I actually did a, yeah, it's called The Dragon's Downfall. It's from uh, almost exactly a year ago, actually, June 3rd uh, last year. And they have... Um, they have some very serious problems, and it's pretty much the four things I outlined. No more babies, which means that their population is, their population pyramid is about to invert, and they're going to have huge problems socially over the next 20 years. Their uh, debt bubble is going to burst at some point. Their ability to feed their own population is already an issue and they just they, they don't have a good political system for responding quickly to rapid changes in the world economy um, they can do some of it but they can't do much of it and their, their sort of top-down approach to managing economic problems means that they can they can push very hard very quickly in one direction but then they can't slow down because their entire political structure is very Asian in nature. It's based entirely on the idea of saving face. Uh, you can never question the government. The government can never be wrong. Whatever the government says is true. But by that same token, if the government gets something wrong, it can never admit it. It can never go back. Which is why you've got these insane lockdowns in Shanghai right now. Or, you know, they, I think they finally started um, releasing Shanghai from those lockdowns. But there's a political element at play as well, because remember, uh, Xi Jinping's power base is in Beijing. Jiang Zemin's power base is in Shanghai. The people who are from the, the sort of business community, um, who have the closest links to China's oligarchs, their billionaire class, are primarily based around Shanghai. The people who are entrenched in the political system are in Beijing. And the Beijing power center wants to keep the Shanghai power center at bay. So the result of these lockdowns has been the weakening of the Shanghai power center, substantial weakening actually, which acted as a crucial and very important check on Beijing's power. Now that seems to be removed. It's being eroded. Now, looking at the interaction between China and Russia, the, the Russians have essentially agreed to supply China with all of the cheap fuel, cheap food, um, 
that it needs to continue its economic expansion. This is great as far as the Chinese are concerned. They've probably bought themselves another 10 or 20 years of real economic growth, powering their economy, giving it the, the, the impetus that it needs to produce as much as it needs, but they still remain a primarily export-oriented economy. That is not to say, however, that if people stopped buying their exports, the Chinese economy would shut down. I think this is where the United States is going horribly, horribly, horrendously wrong. The U.S. thinks that by essentially sanctioning China, as opposed to raising tariffs, if you raise tariffs on imported goods, that's one thing. That makes sense. That's economically sensible. But if you raise sanctions on imported goods, then you're basically banning them from being imported at all. And you're introducing massive disruptions in your own supply chains. The Americans seem to think that you can just sanction China into oblivion. It's not going to happen. Because the Chinese have been able to move along the industrial value chain from cheap, shitty, crappy goods, which you can still get in China, obviously, to actually high-end manufacturing. They're capable of doing that the same way that the Russians are capable of doing high-end manufacturing. The same way that a lot of Western countries are capable of doing high-end manufacturing. But the Chinese can do it better and faster and cheaper. And while their political system is useless at turning quickly, you know, in the face of innovation and technology, it can co-opt that innovation and technology for its own rather sinister ends. The Chinese will introduce, sooner or later, a full digital currency. They've already introduced it in some of the coastal cities, I think. Uh, a full digital yuan, a full uh, retail central bank digital currency, which will give them complete access to all of their citizens' transactions, all of their movements, all of their spending, etc., etc. Uh, this will give them unprecedented control and insight into the Chinese economy. Like, nobody else is going to have it. The Russians have a fully digitized uh, VAT collection system, what they call NDS, and they say, actually, um, their 20% sales tax is collected at point of sale and transmitted automatically to a huge government database in Moscow. Every single transaction done with a card or with cash is digitally recognized, even from, you know, all but the, the most inhospitable, far-reaching parts of Russia. And it all goes to this one central hub in Moscow. It's an amazing system. It's one that the rest of the world really doesn't have by comparison. The Russians are not backward country hicks anymore. I mean, they've really figured out, technologically speaking, how to sort out a lot of problems. But if you look at China as a whole, you're still looking at a country that is going to become the regional dominant superpower. And there's nothing anyone can do to stop it. The United States had its chance in the 90s. It blew it completely. It had its chance in the 2000s, blew it again completely. By letting the Chinese into the World Trade Organization and letting them stack the playing field uh, unfairly in their favor, the Chinese were able to exploit Western stupidity and Western incompetence and Western corruption and Western greed and create for themselves this position as the world's manufacturing hub. That's going to persist for some time, but there are dangers in in the waiting, you know, in the offing, as it were. It is also unknown how well the Chinese will perform as a military. They've never really been tested in the last 70 years, basically. Every time the People's Liberation Army has actually had to fight, it's 
really not done very well. Mythology aside, the Chinese Civil War was actually a disaster for the PLA. It was only when the Japanese kind of exhausted the Kuomintang and the, the KMT were at their weakest, the Chinese were able to strike after the end of World War II and drive the KMT away over to Taiwan. Today, the PLA has not really fought a serious war in a very, very long time. They're probably managed a lot less stupidly than the U.S. Army is and the U.S. military in general because they don't have a bunch of woke stupidity to deal with. But they are certainly not the kind of, you know, all-weather, all-capable, always-ready fighting force capable of absorbing serious losses the way that the Russians or the Americans are. They just don't have the expertise or the skills. That doesn't mean they'd be useless in a fight. It just means we don't know. We don't know how good their military actually is under combat conditions. But we're probably going to find out in a very big hurry sometime in the next 6 to 18 months. Because that's about how long, judging by my sources, it will take for the Chinese to prepare for a full invasion of Taiwan. And the Taiwanese themselves estimate that they can hold out for anywhere between one and seven days. That's it. One to seven days to hold out against the full juggernaut of the Chinese army, even though the Taiwanese will know exactly where the Chinese are going to land, exactly where they're going to establish their beachheads and their supply lines. All they've got is a maximum, I would say a maximum personally, of about three days. That's it. So that's China dealt with. I do think that the, the, the composite of China in, and Russia is going to become kind of the great power center of the world. And Russia has kind of moved away from its Western-leaning roots. Um, 300 years, basically, Russian policy has reversed course in three months because the Russians understand that their future no longer lies with Europe because the Europeans are just horrendously bad customers. I mean, they are so bad. They are, they're like the, the customer that everybody hates to deal with. Everybody hates to deal with the, the Europeans doing, you know, stupid European things. That's what they do. They're, they're just, they're constantly bitching and moaning about what they get from the Russians. They're constantly accusing the Russians of trying to stiff them on prices. They're constantly accusing the Russians of, um, trying to blackmail them. And meanwhile, the Europeans are the ones who aren't paying for their oil and gas and coal. The Europeans are the ones who are, shortchanging them on payments. The Europeans are the ones basically saying, we don't want long-term contracts. We want spot contracts instead because spot prices are cheaper. Well, not anymore. They're not. Spot prices aren't cheaper anymore. Um, I think the Russians are just glad to be rid of this horrendously bad customer. I think they're, they're much happier to go to customers who really want their products. And that brings us to India. India is an interesting case. India has 1.4 billion people. Um, it has enormous productive capacity in its economy. It has tremendous human capital available to it. And yet India has consistently failed to match its expectations. Why? I think, and this is just me speaking, I think a lot of it has to do with a very, very messed up mentality and mindset that comes from Hinduism. It's a very fatalistic, very class-driven kind of segregationist mindset that says you get what you deserve in this life and you shouldn't complain about it. 
because if you did something horrible in your past life, you're being punished for it now, and you should just grin bear it. It is what it is. Don't try to fight against it. And so you get this very weird tug of war between the very blinkered and foolish worldview that Hinduism imposes on people. I mean, Hinduism is, is it, it denies objective reality. It really does. Hinduism, depending on what version of it you read into, and Hinduism is kind of very much a take it, take what you want sort of faith. There's, there are many reasons why the New Age movement draws so heavily on Hinduism as a source of inspiration. Hinduism basically argues that you can have whatever you want and you can believe what you want and you don't have to believe what you don't want. And as long as you obey a few general principles, then it's okay. But you'll, you'll find Hindu mystics and gurus who will basically say, well, I can be a man and I can be a woman at the same time or neither or uh, one or the other whenever I want to be, depending on how I feel. Because that's the reality of the universe and that's what the universe and the oneness of the universe and so on uh, inspires me to believe. It's like, okay, uh, I mean, I'm not making this up. This is, this is what actual Hindu gurus will tell you. These people aren't, you know, anchored in reality. They, they don't come from the same position that a, uh, a Mosaic Jew or a Christian would come from, a real Christian, wherein there is objective reality, wherein the world was created according to a set of certain principles that are knowable, wherein God gave us these gifts for a reason, and that wherein each and every life is valuable in and of itself because God created us in his image, to be his imagers, his functional imagers, if you take Dr. Mike Heiser's approach, or his actual imagers, if you take uh, mainstream Christian theology. Well, up to you. I'm not going to argue with either one. But that is totally different to what Hindus believe. Hindus don't believe in that at all. And I really think Hinduism is going to hold the continent back. I'm not saying that secular atheism is the answer, because it's not. I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, secular atheism is a horrendous path to go down. But the full dynamism and power and productive potential of the economy is going to be held back for many, many decades because of these very, very foolish beliefs that they have and because of their very fragmented political system. Uh, India is a federal republic, so there is always this tug of war, this competition between the local governments, the state governments, and the federal government. That's actually a good thing, because if the federal government could get, over, get, get away with whatever it wanted, it would be a disaster. But India has a particular wrinkle that the United States doesn't have, or didn't have until fairly recently. India is not one nation. It's really not. It's actually a whole bunch of different ethnicities and tribes and nations kind of squabbling with each other and different races, different religions, different castes, different groups with special interests of their own. And every little interest group wants to carve out its own particular exemption from the overall Indian pie, which is why the policy of the Indian government has been for many years now to kind of give in and give each grouping its own bit of territory, its own state, its own province, its own autonomous zone, its own you know self-governing area. Well, that's not particularly healthy for long-term unity or... Um, national identity. 
And sooner or later, I suspect what you're going to see is India break apart along sectarian, religious, and ethnic lines. There are just too many competing groups in India for it to stay united for very much longer. Um, I really do think that sooner or later, particularly when famine hits, India is not capable of feeding itself. Um, it is not self-sufficient in food, unlike Russia. China is not self-sufficient in food either, but they can get food from their neighbors. They can get lots of food from Russia, from uh, the other Soviet republics in the West. They have the trade relationships built up with the entire Asian region to get the food that they need. India doesn't have that, that luxury. It doesn't have that privilege because it has geo, it has very serious geographical boundaries around it, preventing it from doing some of these things. And if you look at its neighbors directly to the west and the east, they're dysfunctional shitholes too. If you look at Pakistan, you look at Bangladesh. Um, these are not good places to get food, really, realistically. So India is in a bit of a pickle uh, in terms of food security. It's it doesn't it's not self sufficient in terms of energy, and that's where transactions with Russia will help substantially, but it's still got a big energy gap that it needs to address. Out of the three big Eurasian powers, India is probably the weakest, even though it has the biggest population. So there's all this productive potential in India that cannot be unlocked yet until the Indians themselves solve and sort out some of their worst problems. And it's going to be a long time before they do it because, let's face facts, the Indian political system is not designed to solve these things quickly. But overall, these three powers are going to kind of determine the way that things move forward in the 21st century. And if you add in Turkey to the mix, which acts as that bridge between Europe and Eurasia, uh, Turkey right now is a very dysfunctional country and will stay dysfunctional for a long time because they basically don't have a clue about monetary economics. They, the uh, Erdogan seems to think that the cure for inflation is to print more money and to lower interest rates. Uh, I mean, what can I say other than that's idiotic? I've actually spoken to people in the Turkish monetary system. Um, I'm not going to say who, but I've spoken to people who are who know about this stuff from first-hand experience, and they're like, "Yeah, we've got a serious problem." They know they've got a problem. They know that official inflation is 70%. It's really double that. It's like a hundred plus percent every year now. You can't run an economy under conditions like that. And when you have rampant inflation like that, which is, by the way, how the West is going to break apart, you when you have rampant inflation, what tends to happen is prices go up. Businesses can't pass on those prices quickly to consumers. So they have to eat that price increase on their own. You know, that erodes their margins for a while. So they have to start letting people go. At the same time, people ask for price raises or for wage hikes. They can't really get them because wages take time to adjust to rising prices. And when they are unable to get those wage hikes that they need in order to keep up with the increases in the cost of living, they inevitably cut back on their spending. So you see a debt-based economy begin to spring up where people borrow money to, to fund their lifestyles because they know they'll have to pay less back over time. 
and you see inflation beginning to compound because more and more money starts chasing fewer and fewer things. Inevitably, you run into a hard stop at some point, a brick wall of reality. There just aren't any more goods to be bought. Everyone has sold their hard assets uh, to get whatever money they can in order to fund just the basic living expenses. There are no more goods to be bought. All the money in the world isn't going to save you at that point. At that point, it's a hard economic reset. And that's what's confronting Turkey right now. Eventually, if they don't solve this problem with huge increases in their interest rates and substantial cuts in government spending, they're going to run face first into a hyperinflationary crisis, which will starve their people, destroy their economy. And that's actually fate confronting the West as well, if it doesn't get this rampaging beast of inflation under control. It's not a problem that confronts Russia. It's not really a problem that confronts China, although we don't fully know, because you can't trust a damn thing the Chinese say. You just, you cannot trust their statistics. It is a problem that sort of confronts India, but again, you can't trust what the Reserve Bank of India says. You can't trust their statistics either. The only nation that seems to have our sorted from elbow right now is Russia. And that's going to hold them in very, very good stead as we go into the 21st century. And as we explore what is out there, I think we're going to find that the twin powers of Russia and China are going to be the determinants of how things progress. Now, I want to close off briefly by talking about how that might end. It's been known for quite some time that China views basically everything north of the Amur and east of the Urals as like part of greater China. They view all of that hinterland of Russia as essentially their territory. The Russians know this. They're not stupid. So they are going to have to, at some point, gear their defenses towards defending, very hard to defend, parts of the Russian Empire towards the east. This is really difficult because the infrastructure in Eastern Russia is actually quite poor. If you look at Western Russia, it's very built up, very metropolitan, very um, good roads, great rail systems, uh, excellent infrastructure. Look out east, there's almost nothing there. I am not joking when I tell you that it is easier for Russians, or it used to be easier for Russians before the war, to fly to New Zealand than it was for them to fly to Kamchatka. I'm not joking about that. Russians themselves have told me that. And I've, you know, I've looked up the prices. It's true. It's actually cheaper for them. Or again, it was cheaper for them to fly to New Zealand than it was to Kamchatka. That may have to change because the Russians know that the Chinese are eyeing their resources quite hungrily and will not hesitate to make a move on them if it comes into their interest. Now, the Chinese always play the long game, always. They had the chance to move in on Russia in the 90s when Russia was at its weakest. They didn't. They seemed to understand at some level that they would need Russia on side to confront the United States when the time came. And that time seems to be coming. What happens afterwards, I don't know. But I would not be overly surprised if at some point the Russian-Chinese alliance breaks up and the Chinese try to take by force resources in the great frozen Russian hinterland. 
I don't see that as a likely possibility, but it's something to keep in mind nonetheless. It is definitely something to watch out for. Okay? Well, I've gone on quite long enough and my throat is very dry and uh, I need to go drink some water and carry on with my day. But I hope you guys found this somewhat enlightening. I know this has been a rather long podcast. Um, future podcasts should be uh, down to the hour or so length that they usually are. But thank you very much, as always, for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and patronage and uh, your attention. Please be sure to like, comment, share, and subscribe. Be sure to subscribe to my mailing list, subscribe to the podcast. And if you haven't done it already, join my Telegram channel because you'll get a lot more analysis like this, you know, direct from me in shorter form, more easily readable. Uh, you get lots of interesting links and articles that I forward to my chat, particularly on the Banderistan War. And you get a pretty much daily update, these days, pretty much daily update from me at the end of every day where I talk about the events that have happened and offer my own spin on it. It's a 10-minute segment, which is actually one of the reasons why I haven't done too many podcasts of late because I've been doing these segments instead. So I'm like, well, you know, why bother? But it's nice to be able to do a long-form podcast from time to time. So uh, thank you again. And this has been Didactic Mind, episode 100, The Eurasian Century. And I am Didact, signing off.